Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 4th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Con News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And uh, we're delighted to be joined by David Ellis. Um, now, we have been reporting over the, the last few um, UK column news that the number of emails coming into us has increased dramatically. The quality of those emails is, is really excellent. We're delighted. But this one was just spot on target. So uh, an email to the UK column about UK armed forces. Dear Brian, I've been listening with trepidation to you, Mike, Alex and David, especially with regard to the armed forces of England my country of birth, I've donated and I pray regularly for the lunatic things going on to be reversed. This to me is far more important than the COVID pandemic. I saw today this article in the Express, the first time I remember seeing anything outside of the UK column on this hideous subject of what is happening to our defence. <clears throat> and there's the um, link through to an Express article. And uh, the gentleman Stephen ends by saying, don't get me wrong, I'm an expat for more years than I've lived in Scunthorpe, but I do still have several friends who I care about and they shudder at the future in Britain, their future. And this makes me so mad. Regards, and I hope everyone stays well. Well, Mike, you're going to take us into that Express article because it's... Uh, is pretty impressive. Uh, well, indeed, it is uh, an article from Frederick Forsyth, who's been publishing quite a bit uh, over the last period of the time uh, on this. And he's asking the question, uh, David, why are our paras taking EU orders? Um, so what's this about? Well, it's Exercise Quick Response 2020. Uh, and this takes place uh, right across Bosnia Herzegovina from the 30th of August ends tomorrow. Uh, and uh, every, this is a, an annual uh, event every year. Uh, EU4, which is the uh, European Union's uh, force, uh, tests contingency plans and the capability of designating designated high readiness forces. That's important high readiness. We'll come on to that in a second. Outside the country to fulfill its mandate. The, this rehearsal also reaffirms and strengthens the close cooperation we have with local authorities, law enforcement agencies and armed forces of the uh, of Bosnia and Herzegovina. As such, it covers all areas of Defence Union that the UK column has been highlighting over the years, uh, including uh, the merging of policing, uh, civilian policing uh, and military operations. It also talks about uh, covers single point command and control. So just before we get uh, David to give us his, his initial comments on this, I just want to play a little bit of video here from the commanding officer of this uh, operation. Uh, this is an exercise that's going on at the moment, as we say. Uh, and listen carefully to what he has to say here. Dear citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina, I'm the commander of U4. This summer we have selected forces from Austria, Bulgaria, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Romania, the United Kingdom and K4 to join the troops in theater. 20 nations united under U4 command so 20 nations, David, uh, welcome to the program, United under EU4 command. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, great, great to be on with you guys again. Uh, well, that commander just really sums it up, doesn't he? You know, all along we've had this pushback from these hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil MPs who are quite happy to let this all go on in some kind of 25 years silence since Maggie Thatcher last spoke about it. And the silence has only been broken recently politically. 
apart from us, by Anne Widdicombe at the Brexit Party, who openly opposed it. So there you have it. The commander, an Austrian commander, united military under EU for command. Now, I was always pushed back when I was lobbying in Parliament by, don't worry, David, they're nowhere near command. Nothing to worry about. They're nowhere near command. I said, we don't really understand the gambit of this thing. So there you have it. Britain in. Okay. Uh, what, Mike, what was the word that that Austrian commander used with regard to bringing British troops in? What word did he use to describe? Um, <laughs> what, uh, unified? No, no, no. He said that we, he didn't say we'd requested British troops. He said what? We've, we've requested, what was the word he used to describe it? So the, the summoning of these mil Well, play oh, the video again. Okay, we'll play the video again then, if, you, the if you want again. to do that. Okay. Dear citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina, I'm the commander of U4. This summer we have selected forces from Austria, Bulgaria. So there you go, selected, okay. David, so selected. We, we, the EU, selected British troops to attend in United yeah. under EU command, EU4. Okay, I can rest now, can't I? Uh, well, well, I, I, I don't think so, David. There's, there's no rest. There's no rest for the wicked. You're not getting a chance to rest. Uh, but look, let, let's just let's just put this on screen because this is a still from the opening ceremony. Uh, and here we have the parachute regiment, uh, all wearing masks, uh, marching to their positions at the opening ceremony for this uh, for this exercise. So let's just get a close up of that. Uh, and here we go. What do they have on their masks? Well, it is the EU4 logo. And that is what the EU4 logo looks like. So uh, they, we now have the parachute regiment of the British Army uh, operating in Bosnia and Herzegovina, wearing uh, the EU logo on their faces. Now, the last time that British military was taking part in this EU4 operation, um, they were wearing the EU badges on their shoulders, on their right shoulders, if I remember. And there was quite a furore about that at the time, but that was dismissed by uh, the British, uh, by M MPs and other British government officials who, who basically just said, oh, don't, don't worry about it, it's not important. But this time we now have the commander making it absolutely clear that they are operating under EU command uh, and, uh, and that the EU selected them for this duty. There's no, um, there's no ambiguity with any of those comments, you know. That, so the, these MPs now need to break, you know, they, they, they cannot, as Anne Widdicombe put to Boris Johnson, there's no defence now for the silence. Well, they, 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 if they wish to carry on defending this, in, in, this, this indefensible position on what will be a monopoly on military and civilian state violence, which we'll go into more detail on the Day Bellis report this Thursday coming, on what they've actually been doing on this uh, exercise. So the exercise is entitled a rapid response integration. So, okay, what are we integrating with? I mean, they've give the game away there. Um, when I push this around, um, you know, over the recent months, the responses coming back uh, from government to uh, senior officers like Lord Dannett was, don't worry, we're not integrating. They actually said that to him. We're not integrating. We're not doing that. Well, clearly something's gone. Somebody's telling porky pies here, aren't they? Because that's not what this guy's saying. And he's he's actually, you know, under 
you know, uh, working busily there for the EU for what is effectively, I mean, how do we describe this? It's the burgeoning formation of EU defence forces. So within that, so it's tri-service, so it's Army, Navy, Air Force. So what we've got here is the Army end of it, where they're taking all these groups of people from different nations, bringing them together under EU command and control. They will be trained. They're under an EU-led operation with an effectively an EU-tasked uh, officer. Uh, okay, that officer is coming from a national military currently, but it won't be very long if this carries on where they will be trained and they will be EU officers. Yeah. Now, we already know this because the EU has got, you know, its own military staff um, um, wing because Lieutenant General Sir David Leakey of the British Army, who subsequently become Black Rod in Parliament, was head of EU military staff. Oh, okay. Well, David, you used the phrase "porky pies." There, I think we've got to be we've got to be more blunt than that. It's now perfectly clear that MPs, indeed Westminster itself, have been lying to the British people over what has been happening with regard to EU military unification. We said that Brexit was going to come; there would be no change to that military unification to include the United Kingdom. And this is it on a plate. The, the government is lying to the people in this country as our military is dismantled on one hand. We're about to get rid of all of our tanks. On the other hand, what little we've got left is simply handed on a plate to EU unification, even though we're supposed to have left. Uh, right. So let's put this into the con into a bit of context with Brexit, because, of course, uh, many people over the years uh, didn't really understand what Brexit was about because there was a divorce and now there's a future relationship and they didn't quite understand what that was all about. Uh, and David, uh, I'll get your comments on this in a second, but my argument here is that the divorce was about taking Britain out of the established EU treaties, the Treaty of Rome, the Treaty of Nice, the Treaty of uh, Lisbon and so on, because Margaret Thatcher had negotiated a veto and the EU cannot have uh, a member state like the UK with the power of the veto that it had. So we've had to be taken out of those treaties. We're now going to go into new treaties, uh, and that's what the future relationship negotiation is all about. Now, of course, there's a lot of press over the last couple of weeks about the fact that, or the suggestion that these negotiations on the future relationship are running up against deadlines, that they're stalled, that there's arguments over fisheries and so on. But let's just try to understand exactly what uh, the relationship uh, is or is intended to be. Uh, so here's Michel Barnier, uh, and this was uh, what he was talking about at the beginning of the year when the uh, negotiations for the future relationship were, uh, were beginning. And he said the international context is more challenging than ever. Uh, unpredictability and instability are the new normal. Uh, he said Russia continues to assert its influence in the region and beyond, sometimes in contradiction with international law. We'll be coming on to a bit more of Russia a little later. Uh, China is engaging in strategic uh, competition and promoting its alternative economic model around the world. He said the United States increasingly chooses the path of unilateralism to defend its interests. He said that trade tensions and technological competition are new drivers of international relations. And not to mention, he said, the spread of terrorism and global instability. The global picture has informed our approach to Brexit since the very beginning. Uh, and he said, this is what we agreed with the United Kingdom in the political declaration of October 2019. We want to be partners in foreign policy to promote rules-based multilateralism and project shared values to the rest of the world. 
partners in sanctions to facilitate cons consultation and mutually reinforcing restrictive measures when foreign policy objectives are aligned, partners on intelligence to fight terrorism, better an anticipate emerging threats to Europe's security, uh, partners on defence policy to ensure the stability of our neighbourhood and in defence programmes to build cutting-edge equipment and facilitate interoperability with our, of our armed forces, partners in cybersecurity to exchange information, promote global standards and combine expertise. So uh, when he was presenting uh, the ideas for the future relationship, he presented this graphic. Uh, and uh, of course, he w talked about a level playing field, a trade agreement. Uh, and as you can see from this graphic, the trade agreement is only 50% of what the EU has in mind. Uh, the other 50% is the security partnership, which includes uh, foreign security and defence policy. It includes the intelligence services. It includes space. It includes data exchange and bulk data gathering. We'll be talking a little bit more about that in a second, uh, and so on. Uh, now, that was uh, what was being proposed. Uh, then the negotiating groups uh, were actually announced, so they decided to negotiate trade and goods, trade and services and investment, uh, level playing field for open and fair competition, transport, energy and civil nuclear co cooperation, fisheries, which is supposedly the, uh, the problem area at the moment, mobility and social security coordination, law enforcement, judicial cooperation and criminal matters, thematic cooperation, participation in union programs, uh, and uh, finally, horizontal arrangements and governance. I'm not sure whether that's uh, nighttime activities or something. I'm not quite, <laughs> I'm not sure, not quite sure what that's about. But anyway, uh, what they specifically then said was the European Commission notes that the United Kingdom proposes not to include a negotiating group dedicated to cooperation on foreign policy, security and defence. And this was really telling, David, because uh, what the uh, European Commission is noting here is that the United Kingdom really doesn't want this issue of cooperation on foreign policy, security, defence, despite the fact that it's such a huge part of the future relationship with the EU. They don't really want it getting the news headlines. And uh, as we have seen over the last number of months, the only thing that's ever discussed about the future relationship in the mainstream press is the trade agreement, which is only 50% of this agreement, uh, of this new future relationship, and the defence side is ignored. So this is massively important for those that are new to the UK column and haven't been following what we've been doing on this issue for the last three or four years. This is massively important because it totally uh, is central to, to our, uh, our future relationship with the EU. It's probably, David, central to our relationship with the United States within the Five Eyes. Uh, and it's certainly uh, central to foreign policy and our, our per, you know, perhaps we're helping to drive the EU, EU's reaction to Russia and China in particular. That's absolutely correct. But the majority of, of what the EU are after is the full-on single-point defence union, which will be unifying our military, our probably the policing to, as well, uh, to an extent as well. It would They want to unify our intelligence, which means MI5, MI6, GCHQ. They want access through the Five Eyes to the NSA's bulk data. There's the, there's the kingpin. And they're talking about, you know, partnership. You know, the language that they're using there is very interesting, isn't it? Because they're saying that, you know, they want a partnership. Barnier isn't actually putting there in black and white what that partnership is. The partnership is defence union. 
military union, security union. It's unified. We want yours. We want it all for free. It's nil on the balance sheet. And you hand it all over for free and you come in to the single point system. So what we've all got to get to grips with is Maggie opposed this. She said no to it and she kept us out of this, this defence union arrangement. Uh, and then all that was started to be undone by Tony Blair. And the, the, the preceding governments of, of Cameron and May have really carried on with it. They've allowed it to get to carry on. And it's silent. It's, deep, it's been deep and silent since the Thatcher period. All right. So I think Rusty Furman, uh, SAS TV, so if anybody's familiar with him, is a man with no gloves, sums this up beautifully on a video that he's just put out. And he asked the question, why the silence? And the silence is clearly because if the British people knew about this, they would absolutely en masse say no. But of course, it's being held out of mainstream media as well, we know, and it's being held out of the public. So if we had four million veterans, friends and family being aware that this was going on, there would be a substantial pushback. So the veto in the new arrangement will go. This is the key thing everybody's got to pay attention to, is that under the arrangement with Maggie, there was a national veto. Now, Ursula von der Leyen has already said the national veto in defence and security has got to go. So you cease to exist as a nation with this. If you, if you carry on with this, you're no longer a nation at all, full stop, because your national veto will go in defence and security. You'll have absolutely no autonomy over any of this stuff whatsoever. And we're supposed to be leaving. This is the, con this is the big fly in the ointment of David Cameron and Mark Sedwell's Brexit. It right, always well, was. It still is now. You know, it's the elephant in the room. And as you beautifully put there, Mike, on that slide, it's at least 50 percent of the new future treaty that the EU are after. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, of course, the negotiation is going on. There's nonsense in the press about it. We're going to probably over the next three months have all kinds of rhetoric in the mainstream press about, uh, you know, leaving with no deal and so on, uh, because that's the way these negotiations run. But, David, I just want to remind everybody, uh, finally, of course, it was the UK column. I think this was about two years ago, possibly th three years ago, um, highlighted this little comment from Francois Fisher, the head of EU intelligence. First of all, um, in the intelligence and security sector, uh, UK will not leave. It's a big secret, but you will not leave. Now, we, that was an exclusive for us, David, but that absolutely made it clear, and that position hasn't changed. No, it's entirely correct. It hasn't changed. You know, uh, and we need, you know, as Anne Whittacombe said in the Express, Boris can no longer hide with this. There is no defence for keeping quiet on this issue anymore. It's absolutely wide open there in Europe. You know, and we've got this issue of uh, clearly some uh, unhappiness with the Trump, uh, the Trump administration in America with what's going on in all this. And our politicians are absolutely continuing. They're effectively assisting the EU by keeping silent on it. So this is the hypocrite. This is the hypocrisy that we've got. These Brexit MPs won't say a thing on this. Or mute. They're in effect by their ignorance or their inability to do anything or say anything on this. They are consenting to this because they are silent.
Okay, well, look, uh, we, I just want to highlight this. We've been talking about this issue for many, many years. Uh, if you go to the UK column website, we have a whole section on EU defence union, military unification. Uh, we have a timeline. It's a long timeline. You will absolutely, if you work, work your way through it, understand the position of how we got here. Uh, and it goes up to uh, February 2019, when Tony Blair at the Munich Security Conference uh, acknowledged, admitted, as you've just said, David, that he started this modern process of bringing us into this uh, institution. So, uh, so do go and have a look at that if you want to understand the background to all this uh, and, more importantly, share it if you can. Now, speaking of, uh, of bulk data and the desire to, for the EU to get their hands on access to it, uh, David, you were speaking to Bill Binney uh, on uh, yesterday's uh, um, David Ellis report. Uh, yeah, I was. It was absolutely an intriguing uh, conversation and, and expose of just the inner workings there as what's been going on with this bulk data collection uh, and how it's been applied and how the Five Eyes accesses it through their IC Reach program. Um, and a real top to bottom discussion there with Bill, who has extraordinary technical knowledge on this subject. And I found it intriguing that he was saying to the to the House of Lords and, and a committee there that um, he'd said that you know there was no reason, and this is the real uh, revelation, that the Lords and MPs all their stuffs monitored as well, uh, which a few of them suspect said to me that they suspected it, but I mean he confirmed it. And he's, what the key the key thing was there was no reason for it; they could be excluded from it. There wasn't a problem because a lot of the systems and programs that he dealt with there at the NSA. Um, you know, it was perfectly manageable for them to be carrying on their work um, in private. So, you know, they're not excluded from this either. So, uh, I think he also went into that there was bulk data gathering on children as well, everyone's children. Uh, and really, the, the, the focus of the, of the conversation was the step change in policy from specifically trying to look at problematic groups or terrorism or issues. Um, where it was targeted and reasonable and so on and so forth, to then being just completely everyone, and how Bill and his people or his friends and colleagues there were saying that, that was unconstitutional for, for anybody to be doing that in America. That was against their uh, constitutional rights. So I, I find that, you know, that was one of the key points that he was making, and he, de he was defending it on principle and through the correct channels, and then he was then pushed out of, uh, of, of the NSA on that basis of trying to say, you know, this isn't right. Well, well. So, in fact, he was yeah, he was going a bit further than saying it isn't right. He was saying no to it and and uh, yeah, yeah. Ab actively. Yeah. Anyway, look, David, we've got to move on. But, but uh, that's currently on the UK Column YouTube channel. It'll be on the front page of the website shortly after the news. Uh, David, I just wanted to uh, finish off your segment here uh, with Dennis Hutchings. There's been some developments now. This Dennis, of course, was the subject of the first uh, David Ellis report. Uh, he is a, a Northern Ireland veteran uh, currently being prosecuted for attempted murder uh, or and uh, facing a, a trial with no jury at this stage in Belfast. So what's what's the latest on this? Uh, the latest on this is is absolutely the most um, abhorrent thing that I've been that I've that I've that I've been told. So I've had, just had a conversation with Dennis this morning as a bit of an update as to what's happening with the situation. So. Just so everybody knows, the Northern Ireland vets were excluded from uh, from the Tony Blair deal. 
This is the Good Friday uh, the, Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement. They were excluded, so they were they were basically hung out to dry. So we've got a lot of activity there with Johnny Mercer before he was a minister and Mark Francois having a push at, at this and veteran support group that Duncan Smith is chairing up and so on and so forth. But what's happened currently is the legal and judicial process that Dennis and his legal team. So there's a small group of these guys that are the, the let's say that they're the first group that are being pushed into this. Um, absolutely disgusting situation by the British government. So, despite him having no case to answer letter from the government um, some years ago, and then there being no no new evidence, he's still in this he's still in this position. So, the legal team there were attempting to mount a press conference to where the current sort of uh, uh, problems that they were finding um, with the judicial end of it and the legal end of this um, of their campaign. And they wanted they wanted to hold a press conference. So there was an outreach to a number of very senior British officers to come and attend the press conference and speak at the press conference on this issue. And this is the key thing. So I wholeheartedly agree with that approach. And this is the key thing. What's what's come back? I'm not going to name the officer. I know who the officer is. And I understand some of the other officers that have been approached as well to come and speak and support these veterans in this case. And what's been said is from this officer, who's a general and an ex-chief of defence staff, that he was not prepared to come to the press conference to discuss the legality and the judicial side of this affair, because it was all completely Political. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's uh, that's that's pretty clear. So this prosecution is not about justice. Then it's a political exercise, and that's what Dennis was uh, arguing in his in the interview with you. That's absolutely correct. Dennis knows it. We know it. The majority of the veterans out there are campaigning know it. And I, I've got to thank this officer really kindly for this. Because to have it confirmed from somebody of his rank and standing that this is nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with any kind of um, legal basis, that this is an entirely political exercise. So, OK, this goes fairly and squarely now to the feet of all of these MPs. OK, let's take it on verbatim that he's saying this is political. Right. Then this is over to you. You sort it and you deal with it because what's being done to these veterans is absolutely. I mean, can you imagine Vladimir Putin doing this to his veterans? Can well, you imagine Donald Trump doing this to his veterans? No, I don't think they would. I, I think you're. Are. I think you're absolutely right there, David. Um, do we have an explanation for why this should be done? I believe that we do. And I'll introduce a little bit of that more towards the end of the news. But this is about absolutely destroying the morale in Britain's armed forces in order that they are broken down, in order that that continued integration with the EU um, forces, EU defence unification continues. So this is political. It's targeted. It's about breakdown. And we're seeing breakdown in every one of the const of the nation's institutions, whether it's the police or the NHS or education. It doesn't matter where you look. We're watching breakdown. That breakdown is deliberate. It's calculated. It's engineered by a group of people who've essentially 
uh, run a coup. We've had a coup. The people running this country are no longer looking after the best interests of, of the wider public. But uh, we'll have to come back at this because I think we could take out the rest of the news. Uh, we could. But uh, look, David, I know you've got to run, but if you're able to hang on for a little bit, that would be really good because we'd be interested to get your comments on this. Now, let's uh, just talk briefly about uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, of course, uh, this has now been identified that his alleged poisoning uh, was, in fact, Novichok. Definitely Novichok. Absolutely, definitely. Now, just to give a bit of background to this, he fell ill. Uh, during a flight from Tomsk in Siberia to Moscow on the 20th of August. Uh, the aircraft uh, performed an emergency landing at Omsk. He was taken to a local hospital uh, and uh, very, very quickly, actually. And then several days later, he was flown to uh, Charlotte Clinic in Berlin. And German doctors say that they found traces of a substance from a group of uh, what are called uh, cholinesterase uh, inhibitors in the body. Uh, Russia has denied that. Um, and uh, now, more recently, they have claimed that it was uh, being identified as Novichok. Uh, and so uh, here is uh, um, Angela Merkel herself saying this crime against Navalny was aimed against the fundamental rights and values we stand for. It raises questions only Russia can answer. Um, and uh, well, there are mixed messages then from other German politicians. Uh, here's uh, the, uh, from the Green Party, Katrin Goering-Eckert. Uh, Nord Stream 2 is no longer something which we can continue together with Russia. So perhaps uh, this gives us a clue as to what is actually going on here. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Wolfgang Kubicki, from, uh, the, who's the Bundestag vice president, said, I'm skeptical in the present state of knowledge. We should put a project of that size in the question. So the target here clearly is, uh, is Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia to Germany. Uh, this has been a target of the West for quite some time. Many in the West very unhappy that Germany pursuing this pipeline. Uh, but Merkel had said that the uh, poisoning was proof beyond doubt. So she seems to be falling into the trap of the anti-Nord Stream cabal. Uh, and well, in the UK here, we've had some comments from the various influential people. Here's Tobias Elwood, who, of course, is uh, chair of the uh, Defence Select Committee, uh, saying Navalny poisoning and emboldened Putin is leveraging a world distracted by COVID-19, the US preoccupation by elections in the West, and a West never more divided and risk-averse since the Cold War. We must be on our guard, he said uh, on Twitter, for another significant international incident. Well, actually, he, this is quite light language. Uh, compared to other tweets recently uh, on another subject, for sure, but still involving Russia, uh, this time on Belarus, uh, saying incredible footage of the KGB attempting to lift a protester, but the people have other ideas. Tensions are rising in Belarus. The UK does not recognize Lukashenko's presidency. As the situation escalates, the West should think carefully about preempting any Russian aggression. And David, I'm very keen to get your thoughts on what you thought he meant by that, because that seems to me to be a very strong statement. We'll come back onto, uh, onto uh, Navalny in a second, but just want to get your thoughts on what Tobias Elwood has said there about Russia. Well, it's, they're, they're, they're repeating a, a format that's been used before, and it's not, you know, to say it hasn't it hadn't worked before would be an understatement. So, you know, to come back again, oh, is this the fourth time with this, with this sort of um, gambit? You know, um, dirty work's been going on, and, and Russia's instantly instantly blamed, and they they just it's all becomes 
just completely smoke and mirrors at this stage. Oh, okay, but, but I, was inter- I, was, I was sorry, David, I was interested in getting your thoughts on what, what Tobias yeah. would, would have meant by preempting any Russian aggression. When, when, if you want to put that, the, the slide up there, and let's just look at the language he's using. So he's talking there about um, the West preempting Russian aggr- aggression. Now, in, in, in military terms, I'm just going pos- to put this out there. All right, so this is a question. I'm submitting this as a question. Does that mean that the West has to consider a preemptive strike on Russia? Because he's talking about preempting Russian aggression. So he's saying we think the Russians are going to preemptively strike. So that would mean that the West would have to preemptively strike. Now, that's only going to go one or two ways very rapidly within a short space of time. There's going to be, you know, weapons of mass destruction engaged quickly because that's the way that that would work. So what on earth is he saying there as, as chair of defense committee is very, very aggressive language. Uh, you know, yeah. I, 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 I can only come back to sort of, you know, when he's talking about preemptive action, he's talking about a preemptive strike, isn't he? That, that's what he's saying. Are you, are you seriously saying that we're going to we're going to consider a preemptive strike against Russia? He certainly seems to be calling for it, whether because, we're considering how, it. You know, just, how, just, how else is he to interpret what he's saying? But he's, this guy's openly doing this on Twitter for crying out loud. This is absolutely insane. Well, it's, it, it's insane, but I think he absolutely knows what he's doing because is he acting as chair of the defence committee or is he actually carrying out a role with 77 Brigade, in which case what he's actually talking about is getting in and destabilising the eastern states in order to preempt what Russia is on about. His job in 77 Brigade is disinformation, it's propaganda, it's destroying nation states from the inside. This is the job of 77 Brigade, is to bring down nation states, is to monitor citizens, is to influence people. Mm. So you don't know what uh, Mr. Rab is... is, uh, no, that's, uh, sorry, uh, I beg Elwood, your pardon, Tobias I've switched Elwood. slides there. Tobias, yeah. El, Tobias El, Elwood, you don't know which hat he's got on. Is it the Defence Select Committee? I don't think he's wearing that hat. I think this man is into very, very dangerous, devious works with 77 well, it, Brigade. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost as a treble whammy, isn't it? Britain militarily at the moment could do what? You know, and this is no disrespect to the people in there serving. I'm not engaging in that at all, you know, because the utmost respect to them. But our military fighting capability at the moment is abysmal. And we can go back to Richard Barron's at Defence Committee, and I'll quote him. The army at the... And this was a couple of years ago. The army is not fit for purpose. Okay, so what on earth is Elwood talking about here with a pretext to war? This is militarily complete and utter bunkum. He's in no position to be threatening anyone with anything. All right. You know, who on earth, if he, let's just say we go along with this, and there is a pretext to war, and there's some kind of ruckus starts, who does that suit? Because there's this big, this continual attempt through the, the Trump dossier, as we discussed with Bill Benny on the programme, the Trump dossier, the, the, the Huawei report, the Russia report here in Britain, you know, all this about interfering with elections and all the rest of it. Every time there's all this dirty nonsense going on, Russia gets the blame. Right. So I'm going to just say, you know, what is what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a situation where there's, you know, as Bill was saying on the program, that there's a group out there 
that have been uh, mirroring what's been uh, and stealing this information from the NSA, using it to manipulate uh, elections, which they've seen in America. They've had, you know, there's been this huge attempt to destabilize an election there against Trump and blame uh, Russia, which is not the case. You know, Bill's just blown all that out of the water. We've had the same here with Brexit. And again, we're going to blame Russia. Now they're talking about going to war with Russia. So I'm just going to close with this. Somebody out there wants to have their cake and eat it with this and get away. It's almost like, you know, Paul Newman with the sting. We want to be able to rob all this and then get away with it by blaming somebody else. That's the situation. Yeah, there's a lot to be discussed, uh, David, without doubt on this one. And we, we need to stick with it because, as you say, these people are so amazingly dangerous. We could call them idiots, but I don't think that's correct. These are very calculated, dangerous people who are now putting the nation of the United Kingdom at risk. Uh, so that's, if that was Tobias Elwood, here's Dominic Rabb, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, I'm deeply concerned, he said, that Alexei Navalny was poisoned by Novichok, a nerve agent previously used with lethal, lethal effect in the UK. Uh, it is absolutely unacceptable that this banned chemical weapon has been used again, and once more we see violence directed against a leading Russian opposition figure. Uh, the Russian government has a clear case to answer. It must tell the truth about what, what happened to Mr. Navalny. And then he followed up on Twitter uh, by saying this. Uh, he said, the poisoning of Navalny by Novichok is utterly deplorable and a violation of international law. I've just spoken with German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas. We agreed that government must explain what happened uh, and international partners must work together to support an investigation into this attack. Now, this is a really important statement that he's made because when he says that international partners must work together to support an investigation into this attack, what he's talking about is the rapid response mechanism. And this is part of the 77 Brigade infrastructure uh, that Brian's talking about. Uh, so this was Theresa May. I think this was 2018. At a G I think it was June or July 2018. Uh, she had just come or was making a statement at the end of the G7 meeting. Uh, and she said that uh, today, that day, G7 leaders had agreed to establish a new rapid response mechanism. Uh, and she said, uh, that, uh, that they had agreed they must maintain the global norm against the use of chemical weapons and that they've agreed to strengthen the ability of the OPCW to attribute responsibility for chemical weapons attacks. So what is the rapid response mechanism? Well, it was all about the attribution of blame, uh, that Western nations would agree amongst themselves who was responsible for something. Uh, chemical weapons attack, Novichok attack. Uh, the power was given to the OPCW to make a statement, but the rapid response mechanism was all about the G7 nations getting together to form a common narrative and to make sure that that common narrative was pushed through all forms of media, mainstream media, social media, through using tools like 77 Brigade and so on, uh, and the rapid response unit in the cabinet office. Uh, and so that is what uh, Dominic Raab means when he says that the international uh, countries need to get together and, and come up with a, a common attribution and, of blame and so yeah. on. It's extremely dangerous. Very dangerous. And we've got to stay on the case. Yeah. OK, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, but we need to, we'll move on now. So uh, if you'd like what the UK Column's doing and you'd like to uh, join us, then please uh, head over to UK Column. Uh, .org forward slash community. Uh, there are options to join us there and your help very much needed and appreciated. Uh, and I'd just like to uh, 
make the first announcement now that AV 11.1 is going to take place. It's got to be a virtual uh, event. So this is uh, Ian Crane's alternative view event. It is going to be a virtual event uh, and uh, it's going to take place on Sunday, the 1st of November. Uh, it'll be an all-day event from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. We don't know who the speakers are just yet. Uh, tickets uh, aren't available yet, but we just wanted to give everybody a heads up that that is coming uh, in the not-too-distant future. Um, well done to Ian Crane for working on this because, of course, uh, while he's doing that, he's also fighting his particular health issues. So um, well done, Ian Crane. I'm sure it's going to be excellent. Now, we want to stay on the theme that we're seeing more and more good work by UK column viewers and listeners. So let's have a look at a couple of emails that have come in to us. This one is just, well, it says it all about our MP. So uh, one of our viewers wrote to their MP, uh, Scott Mann MP, um, on the subject of the arrest of Piers Corbyn. But the reply came back, thank you for your email. I'm afraid that this is, as this issue is sub judice, uh, the member is unable to give his opinion. So now uh, we can't comment, um, can't help Gov. That's the standard of this man. So at some stage in the future, uh, if the tables were to be turned and uh, Scott Mann was uh, facing the law for whatever reason, uh, obviously he wouldn't expect anybody to lift a finger to help him. But uh, have a look at this because people have been taking on the schools and the wearing of masks. So uh, this email is about uh, that subject. My son is in a particular year, fit and well. He attends a particular school. He returns on Friday the 4th of September. Last week I contacted my son's school to clarify their stance on masks. As the school is in local or the school area is in local lockup, the school... I thought the school and local education authority might go crazy on masks in school. Well, I was correct. All students must wear a mask while in communal areas. During the phone call, I was transferred to my son's head of year. We had a lengthy conversation on the benefits and risks of masks, which she didn't win. She got that flustered. Uh, she finally ended the call with, I will pass this to the head teacher. Someone will contact you. I was quite surprised with the answer to one of my questions, which was, has the school looked for any other advice other than what the LEA and Department for Education have provided? The answer was no. Uh, but they did get a call from the head teacher, explained to her I did not believe the wearing of masks had any medical benefit whatsoever. She disagreed, but she was uncomfortable and kept reiterating the advice from the Department for Education had issued a guideline. I asked her personally, do you believe masks will stop any virus? She was convinced. I was told that if my son did not wear a mask, then he could be isolated in school away from everyone or be suspended. It's pretty draconian, Mike. To cut a long story short, I asked her if she would take some time to look at the evidence herself. After a few nudges and a bit of flattery, she agreed. This afternoon, another call from my son's head teacher. I've managed to spend 10 minutes looking at evidence. And the head teacher saying they're now very confused. She did not realise some of the negative health risks from wearing a mask and was quite alarmed. She's agreed to make my son exempt so he does not have to wear a mask. I've been asked not to mention this to other parents until the school have taken advice on opening this up to all students. My view is they should. I'm not happy about keeping silent, but for the moment I will. So bird one, tomorrow my son will return to school without a mask and bird two, a head teacher. I, so I meant to check what an SMT is. I don't know what that is, 
um, uh, some teaching auxiliary possibly has woken up. So that's all good news. And here we've got somebody taking on their local MP, Suella Braverman. I think she's down in the Portsmouth area somewhere. Uh, um, and they're saying that um, what is the government doing? What's the accuracy of testing? While the cases are rising in number, the death rate is very low. The death rate suggests the crisis is for now over and the NHS are in control. But have a look at this because the person says my background as an engineer to provide pathogen free environments to facilities such as biomedical units. The pathogen size was known to be less known to be less than one billionth of a meter. The filtration plants are always about three meters long, comprising many different filter elements. I know that pathogens cannot be trapped in a media that comprises two layers of cotton. Mm. Yet there is a policy to wear face masks by government order. Many people will know this at senior level, yet the doctrine is to ask everyone to have masks on in shops. I do not support this. This should change, question mark. Better government information as to why there is this insistence and what risk assessment the government argument is based on. Well, we can answer that question. There isn't one. And then the gentleman says about vaccines, it's madness to suggest that short vaccination trials will be accepted by the general public. Vaccines historically have a poor record and accelerated development is not the answer to inspire confidence. The government must not be pressurized by the commercial interests of the pharmaceutical companies. So this was um, a pretty powerful email by virtue of the fact of the professional qualifications of the person writing it. What that MP needs, of course, is a stream of letters and emails and telephone calls every day. So I hope if you're listening from her um, constituency uh, area, I believe that is Portsmouth or close to Hampshire, um, can you help and can you reinforce that? But a positive response on the school one, Mike, when people actually took action. Um, well, good news, Brian, because uh, Imperial College, that organization that had such a positive influence on the whole uh, policy around COVID-19. I hope people will understand that the uh, irony in that statement. Uh, they've produced a new uh, website here, uh, which provides an interactive map. Uh, and you can go and find out all about which are the next areas which are going to suffer from uh, hotspots. Now, what is a hotspot? Well, a hotspot is defined by Imperial College as uh, any local authority where there are more than 50 cases of COVID-19 per 100,000 of the population per week. Uh, and so they're using data on reported cases and weekly reported deaths and mathematical modeling. Uh, and the, the team will report the probability that a local authority will become a hotspot in the following week. Uh, and it also provides estimates for each local authority in England and Wales on whether cases are likely to be increasing or decreasing in the following week and the probability of R being greater than one in the following week. So um, if you want to know whether you're going to be in local lockdown, then you might head over there. But uh, of course, this information is all based on testing uh, and uh, testing and more testing. Well, now we uh, highlighted this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks before we broke up for the summer. But uh, in, in true to form, the British government is re-announcing something that it's announced before, but uh, with a little bit more detail this time. So they're giving £500 million for quick result COVID-19 test trials because they want to roll out tests right, right across the country. They're piloting this in a number of different areas. Uh, Salford is the first one. Um, so uh, this is going to be a community-wide trial in Salford, Salford, which will launch imminently to assess the benefits of repeat population testing 
existing promising trials in Southampton, sorry, Southampton and Hampshire uh, using saliva test and rapid 20-minute test will also be expanded using the new funding. Uh, and uh, initially, the Salford, Salford Initiative will aim to process up to 250 tests a day. Uh, almost 10,000 people took part in the first phase of the Southampton pilot, uh, where GP staff, other essential key workers, university employees and members of their households were delivered tests to their home uh, or place of work and completed tests by putting their saliva in a pot. Uh, the pilot showed an at-home saliva sampling kit to be a reliable means of testing for large-scale regular testing, so that's fantastic. Uh, but of course, uh, 5,000 uh, DNA nudge box machines uh, supplied by DNA Nudge uh, are going to be also going to be rolled out across uh, NHS hospitals to analyse DNA in nose swabs, uh, providing a positive or negative result in 90 minutes for COVID-19 at the point of care. Uh, and uh, and also uh, Lampore uh, tests, uh, processing swab and saliva samples uh, to uh, detect the presence of COVID-19 in 60 to 90 minutes. So Matt Hancock, very excited about all this. He said, we need to use every new innovation at our disposal to build the mass testing capability that can help suppress the virus and enable more of the things that make life worth living. So we're going to enable more of the things that make life worth living. By uh, removing them. By remo well, we've removed them in the first place, yeah. but we're going to mass test. And of course, alongside the mass testing goes mass tracing as well. So the surveillance uh, in, or the surveillance increases, but that's going to suppress the virus. Uh, Coroni understands very well what's going on and is suppressed as soon as anybody takes a test or uh, is tracked. Yeah. Yeah. What's it all about? Well, we need to turn to the BBC and it's not that clear. Indeed, <laughs> we need to turn to the BBC. It's not that clear but it is when you know what you're looking for. So this is a screenshot of the BBC website from earlier today. Um, what are we interested in? Well, we're interested in that top left-hand article designed for your eye to see it straight away. And uh, what is it uh, talking about? Well, it says quarantine lists split the UK as New Wales rules kick in. So as a result of everything to do with uh, COVID and quarantine and lockdown, the real agenda is the splitting up, the breaking up of the UK. And the headline says it all, and we can see by the actions on the ground that this is happening. Now, of course, it isn't just breaking up the nation state. Uh, we're now going into a new phase where power is being handed to the cities. Uh, there's a lot on the UK column website about the march of the city-state. But here we see that COVID is being used to drive this highly political agenda. So we've got a second headline there, pivotal moment as Leeds looks to avoid lockdown. We've got different law, different events happening in different city areas. And this is to help create the power of those individual city regions. Now, a big thank you to somebody who sent me a very, very interesting email uh, late last night. Um, it was for, from Essential Reading. Uh, uh, this is a, an EU website with a variety of material on it. But it was the rise of independent cities. And this is what the article started off with. There's a change happening under our very noses. The power of nations is dwindling. 
and devolution is gathering momentum slowly but surely cities are being allowed to forge their own paths and set their own agendas mayors are becoming abundant and with the mayors comes the autonomy to act on behalf of a city setting policies and spending plans outside of national policy our nations are becoming regions now this is dated 2017 we are living this this is being implemented by the day now in uk these individuals will represent different political parties, different faiths and different ideologies. Surely a recipe for disaster, or is it? One organisation we've had our eye on for quite a while now is Common Purpose. Let's have a look at what their website says. Now, I've put some slides together to, uh, to, um, to show the, uh, the basic thrust of this article. So this is part of the article itself, where Common Purpose is saying that boundaries are everywhere between sectors, specialisations, uh, geographies, generations, backgrounds and beliefs. But we are creating leaders who can work across these boundaries. So this is all to help the breakdown of the nation state. Uh, because when it says the world is becoming more complex and fragmented, of course, it's common purpose that's helping that situation. And in their article, uh, what do they pick up on? Well, common purpose says that cities are our classrooms because cities are where leaders and boundaries converge. So here we've got the link between common purpose and the creation of the city state. If you have a look at the Common Purpose website, uh, they've got their own remarkable response on the coronavirus crisis, uh, where this lady is speaking to the fellow selected Common Purpose future leaders, the people who they believe will be running the world. And um, I encourage people to listen to what she says because most of it appears to be nonsense. I'm reaching out to you at a time of extraordinary change when the world is spinning around us and you're all trying to make sense of it individually and collectively. So you won't understand what's going on. We, we're here in common purpose. We're going to stay the stable centre, but you're going to be spinning because you won't understand what's happening. I'm sure that you're all finding, and I'm certainly, I am, I am that things are changing at extraordinary speed. You know it's unbelievable. However, what has been incredibly exciting is your stories as Common Purpose alumni from around the world who are all doing extraordinary things. So isn't it extraordinary, Mike, that the world is in an extraordinarily bad situation, but Common Purpose is training people to do extraordinary things. Amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. extraordinary. Yeah. So let's get back to the mayors. And the article refers to... Um, uh, it's 2017 and it's ref referring or linked through to this. Uh, we've got an evening standard article. We mayors need more power to boost growth across Britain. Uh, let's see what they were saying. We're seeking more control and powers based on the individual needs of our regions, criminal justice, health and care services, work and pension issues and school. We, our, we want more power. This is what's really happening. And they go on to say this. Crucially, this should include significant fiscal devolution to city regions. Rather than individual grants or handouts, we should be given greater control over existing taxes and revenues. They're standing up. Do we know the views and values of these people? Well, in most ways, we don't. But they want to be given money and power. And 
their claim is this would give us the tools and incentive we need to increase future economic growth and create new jobs right across the UK. But the UK is being slaughtered by the policy to create the power of these city states. Mm. So this was the end bit of the article where it's referring to the Barcelona Centre for International Affairs. And apparently we need city states, resilient cities, because it's the only means of countering violent extremism in our in our countries. So they refer to this Belgian mayor who's won a world prize for the work on integrating immigrants. But of course, what we really need to remember is that people like Peter Sutherland, who was the UN advisor on migration, said that we needed to drive migration in order to break down the homogeneity of nation states. So the extremism is created with the wars and then the forced migration is used to break down the city states. Mm. And if you push this policy through, um, you're going to get a prize. And um, thank you for the person who drew my attention to the worldmayor.com, uh, because we've got a very strange organisation. Can't really find out who's running it. So if any of our viewers or listeners can help. Uh, but here it is. Um, the City Mayor's Foundation was awarded the World, World, sorry, World Mayor Prize and commendation since 2004. Every two years, the World Bear Project features some of the world's most outstanding mayors who have served their fellow citizens with integrity, courage and diligence. Don't worry, Mike, because this is independent. Yeah, yes, good it's stuff. independent. We can't find out who's funding it at the moment, but it is independent. So have no fears. And then here's the City Mayors Foundation, an international research think tank dedicated to local government so we can trust them. Uh, maintained by professionals from Europe, Asia and the Americas who are working together. Can't see any real information about who's funding this, so who holds the power. But if any of our viewers and listeners would like to ask the questions for us, here's the contact details. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, so I was just going to say, if we summarise uh, to understand the UK's COVID-19 change agenda, We've got mass fear, stress, confusion. That's all the smokescreen while this other political agenda is carried out, including the breaking down of UK armed forces. We've got application of behavioural behavioral change to give the state greater influence and control. We've seen that in the Cabinet Office Mindspace document, and we've seen it in the minutes of the SAGE. Uh, meetings on COVID where they said we need to make people more fearful. This is why, because it gives the state greater power. The mask wearing is a stressor and control mechanism where the British public are essentially being trained to do as they're told. I'm calling them Pavlov's dogs, if you've done a little bit of psychology. And what are we heading towards the accelerated breakup of the United Kingdom as the devolution powers are accelerated? And also, as that devolution comes in, we're going to see the rise of the mayors and the city states. And I know that many people are going to say this is only UK, but of course it's not, because we're seeing the same changes in other nation states. And why is that happening? Because, of course, this is part of a global governance plan. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody wants to get some background on this, get on the UK column website and search for the Global Parliament of Mayors. 
uh, and that will give you uh, a bit of a head start. Yes, excellent. Well, I'm just going to end on the subject of sewage. And if you're smiling, you shouldn't be. Uh, but here's the headline um, that apparently UK has said it's very happy to start taking uh, sewage sludge. That's human waste. The first tranche is coming in from the Netherlands, 30,000 tonnes. And that is to be applied to our fields and farmland. Uh, now, the subject of the dangers of doing this um, was evident in UK 20 plus years ago and some restrictions were put on it, but the practice continued, albeit very small. Uh, but now we've got the Netherlands that will not do this because of the dangers to so human health. So it is illegal in the Netherlands? It is illegal in the, the Netherlands, but that waste has now been accepted for UK. And my point is that UK is now literally being made the waste dumping ground of Europe. We're parked on the edge of Europe. We're being taken apart. This is part of the policy if we allow it to happen. So where should we end? Well, we're going to do more on the subject of sewage Monday's news. There is a lot more to it than you may think, uh, but also to say that it's only by the actions of our viewers and listeners are we going to be able to expose and stop what's happening. And clearly many of you are now taking that action, which I think is wonderful. Uh, absolutely. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. Bye-bye.